This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ear Ghosts. Spy Balloons. My Top 10 Films of 2022. And also My Top 10 Films of 2022. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on, and we're not talking tuna. Normally, good neighbors are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor. The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town. Magical kitties save the day is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. <laughs> you know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your game with the Kitty Noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from Golden Age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time, inside a magical bubble, and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's coming to Kickstarter on March 28th, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm, are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master Kit, too. Yeah, it's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties Noir on Kickstarter from March 28th to April 27th, 2023. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Oh, he's coming alive, but he's coming alive out of someone's ear or into <laughs> someone's ear. It's not just the ear worm, Robin. It's an ear ghost of Peter Frampton. And he's not even, he's still with us. This is super weird. Well, believe me, an artist of Peter Frampton's caliber can do anything, including do a bit in response to a request from beloved Patreon backer, Kevin L. Nolt, who asks us to investigate the modern gaming possibilities of diseases caused by ghosts getting in people's ears. A very specific fear, Kevin. Yes. The, the listener might be forgiven for thinking that this is a very, very specific request, but of course, we're about to be invited to demonstrate how to build out a campaign frame idea from one little kooky nugget of a premise. Fantastic. I can see, Kevin continues, some applications to Knights Black Agents and nasty body-hopping vampires, but what about a setting where exorcists battle to put down that which necromancers raise for power, with all the right skills to have some of that power themselves? Robin, this ear ghost business, it's not just nonsense. 
It's Grand Crew Premier Vintage Barrel Age Nonsense from the beginning of time. Yes, original nonsense going back to the beginning of text. All right, fair enough. And the beginning of the uh, civilization in the Sumeria and Babylonia, the Mesopotamian region. So this is a sort of a riff on my uh, Consume Media capsule review of Irving Finkel's The First Ghosts. And yes, indeed, in those cultures, it was thought that uh, one of the ways that you got uh, diseases was that the ghosts would get in your ear, and then you had to bring in the exorcist to uh, get them out. Now, we are being asked, however, to transpose that idea into the modern day. So can we? we're still starting with Earth, mm-hmm. but we're starting with an Earth where suddenly necromancers are running around, summoning ghosts willy-nilly, getting them into people's ears. So the ghosts, uh, first of all, this is an important initiative of the Make Ghosts Scary Committee. Mm -hmm. Often ghosts on their own, not all that scary, but if (laughs) they really haven't done any work on that since the 80s, thanks committee for nothing. Yeah, but if you've got ghosts working for necromancers and they're possessing people or gaining information or uh, causing other uh, trouble, this is what gives us our core activity that unites the campaign. As Kevin suggests, that there are exorcists who will be the player character's who will battle the necromancers. And so uh, I guess my first question is, how do you have an entire group who are all exorcists? How do you break down this core activity so that there's a number of different recognizable specialties that they can have? All right, I'm going to begin with an assumption that we're in a sort of a Wainscott world. It's a secret fantasy situation outside in you know the regular world people still think diseases come from germs and all the stuff that they come from right and probably normally they do and maybe many of them do maybe you know it's not hand washing or ear exorcisms maybe it's a combination of things but some diseases the spookiest most terrifyingly spiritual ones and one or two of the ones that even modern medical science goes ah so I guess a lot of the, what are the, what do they call them? The sort of neuropathic diseases that aren't caused by, you know, a germ. They're not caused by anything else that we know of. It's just suddenly. There's no test for them. Right. You just wake up science. and you've got a, a syndrome or a situation. Uh, I think you could even throw cancer in there if you were in a group that was cool with playing with cancer. That's another disease where all we know is it starts. We don't really know what causes it. So I think I, I want it. I don't want it to be a fantasy world where we've just. You know, where the, the father of medicine is Utnapishtim, who had the flower of ghost exercising back in 3500 BC. I want it to be a secret tradition where if you're really messed up, you go into this sort of shadowy underworld. Robin, can can we start with that? Yes. 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 That okay. sounds good. That that keeps us in a recognizable modern world. Right. In which we have the, the small number of ghost summoners and also the small number of uh, clued-in people who are uh, uh, fighting them. And so I think we also then want to say that everybody in the group can contribute to an exorcism, right? You don't want to have one exorcist and then everybody else is just backup for that. Is this the fighter and the thief? That's not fun. Yeah, exactly. What if that character is not there? But we, I think, probably need to have different specialties. And so perhaps, you know, one person is an expert in Mesopotamian exorcism, which involves pouring libations for the ghosts to get them to go back into the underworld. It'll be a little weird these days because, you know, back in Sumeria, uh, you had little holes in your floor because your family was buried in the walls and floor of your house. And you would just, you know, pour libations in the holes every so often to, to cheer them up. Well, you have to find a new way to do that, possibly a technological way to get libations 
to the ghosts. But the necromancers, I think, probably are, are pan-cultural in terms of which ghosts they get a hold of and, and lie to and corrupt. And, you know, it's not the ghost's fault. They're being bound and forced to do whatever things they're doing. And so I, I think possibly one of the ways to begin to differentiate all the ca- characters is look at different magical cultures throughout uh, history and find the different ways that they would uh, deal with ghosts and evil spirits and and even demons. Because if we're going to make a whole campaign about this, we want to have a, a breadth of possible foes, even if they're all united by their desire to get in your ear canal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that doing a bunch of different exorcism traditions is is good, and that way you can have your sort of rogue Catholic priest character who is the first guy everyone thinks of when they say exorcism character. I did a game for Phoenix called Nose Bodies that was about summoning ghosts for bad reasons, and I had three parts to every ghost summoning and you could sort of uh or then three people that had to be present for every ghost summoning because uh, magic all works by the law of threes and so in that version i had the caller who is the person who uh, sort of channels out to the dead he's got a uh, an object that they that they had and he um you know he, he calls them maybe with a song or a chant or whatever and then the cooker is the guy who would amplify the power of the call and he would usually do that with fire. And so that would be like, he'd smoke a cigar. He'd burn incense. He'd burn blood. He'd do weird stuff like that. And then the cooler is the guy who sort of balances the cooking, the amplifier and the caller, which is he'd play a, a musical instrument. So he'd play like a, a, a harmonica or a, or a penny whistle or something like that to maintain. So I feel like if you have, you know, the guy who can actually touch the the land of the undead, they're a sensitive, but if they just, you know, call the ghost out of somebody, it'll, it'll pop into them because that's how ghosts work. And so you have to have someone who then, you know, provides sort of a spiritual muscle and then also someone who makes sure that, you know, the whole thing doesn't get out of hand and, and blow up the house or wake up the neighborhood and that that is its own set of skills. And that could be mapping to also your sort of stealthy B and E person because they, they quiet things down is their sort of spiritual job. Right. And right. you can begin to think of it as one of the standard party roles, F 20 or none. And then how would we make that work in a sort of ghostly exorcism? And to that end, it suddenly occurs to me that having a kind of a mini adventure that takes place in the memory palace of either the possessed person or the possessing ghost or both, then maybe that's what you have to do is sort of walk through that, the person and get into the ghost and then grab them and pull them out. And so it, it can be a simple fantasy quest retrieve. It can be, you know, a a weird combat. It can be whatever kind of a thing. And each kind of encounter is different structurally as a story. So it's not always the same grab the dingus adventure. Sometimes it's a different thing that you have to do to get the ghost's attention and yank it out of the, the person's ear. Right. So that each different sort of ghost has a distinct way that you have to detach it from the person that it has uh, decided to or been sent to possess. Mm-hmm. So if it's a ancient Mesopotamian ghost, you have to go down into the underworld and go through the underworld myths of that culture. And another one you can suggest, you know, if it's a more recent ghost who has been bound to the world by a terrible traumatic event, you've got to enter their memories of the event and, you know, fight their memories 
in order to alter them and bring them peace. Or another one, as you suggest, is you go into the psyche of the person who's possessed and find the hidden strength that they need in order to repel the ghost. And so this gives you a range of different climactic spirit combats slash climactic quests that can feel uh, different enough to uh, sustain a campaign. However, I would also suggest that even though this is the core activity, the core activity isn't just exorcism, but it's also fighting the human uh, sorcerers who are responsible for all of this. The bad necromancers. Right. And probably they're not just strictly interested in making people sick. Maybe they do that sometimes, uh, perhaps in the early ad- adventures, right? The one uh, evil magician, his goal might just simply be to, you know, extort somebody with, you know, if you deposit a whole bunch of money in my Swiss account, I will let the ghost leave you and otherwise not. And so that's a simple one. And then later you're finding out that some of the ghosts are actually possessing people and creating a broader, bigger conspiracy because the really effective workers with the dead, they want to like take over the country or do some other big, bad sort of thing that would bring you to a, a climactic moment. And so that... And if you have to go into the senator's mind palace to get at the ghost that's possessing him, you might see the senator's, you know, malfeasances, uh, which I'm sure are many and numerous. And so the senator is maybe got a, his own team or the, you know, whoever he's work, working for, the the outfit or the Chinese or whoever, have got their own hit team that once you've exercised the spirit, now you're on the, you know, run from the don't tell anyone about my mind palace, guys. Right. But I think we also want to have, and this gets us back into, hey, you can use the Esoterrorists or Knights Black <laughs> Agents characters for this because there are things that you will want to just deal with in the real world, right? Yeah, you right. Want to fight, uh, possess goons or, you know, if... The necromancers have been successfully blackmailing people. They've got enough money to hire uh, operatives and have secret hideouts and stuff. And so that would give you the variation where some of the adventures, uh, the exorcism part is pretty simple, but it's like getting to, you know, the the safe house where they have, uh, they're keeping the person who's possessed by a ghost prisoner until the ghost can fully take them or, you know, find different variations until you finally have the big climactic uh, scenario where they uh, bust open the whole necromancer uh, conspiracy and uh, perhaps uh, banish from the world their ability to uh, uh, mess with ghosts. I feel like we are in a possible space, and I don't know that this is good design, but I'm going to throw it out there, where we could say that the kind of exorcist power you have is not the same. So I was thinking that the, the quieter is the uh, stealthy rogue guy, but maybe this is your chance to play two different characters. And one of the characters is the character you present when you're going into the ghost realm. And in the ghost realm, you might be the, the bruiser, the, the puncher up because you were so full of, of pineal uh, energy or, or ghost fighting energy. But in the real world, you're the, the hacker or, or whatever. And so you get to play two different parts of the party as opposed to having your two roles synchronize and echo each other uh, the way I was initially thinking. Does that sound like good game design or annoying game design, Robin? Well, I would, would make that an option where right. you can choose whether to harm and the whole group would have to choose right, one way yeah. or the other. I think that people on paper initially would be attracted to the idea of switching up the characters between the two different realities. But I think in reality, most (laughs) people prefer usually to play a kind of a similar character most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so they're 
not going to, and they might want to say yes to it because it sounds cool. And I think they would say, yeah, but I, because you don't want the situation where they are bummed out because half the time they're playing the tech guy when really they want to play the punch in the face guy the whole time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that you're building two halves of the character and then it's up to the player group to say, um, my ectoplasmic combat half is one kind. They're pulling from one set of templates. My physical world, uh, my, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, world guy is pulling from a different set of templates. Maybe they're overlappy templates. They're both the fighty type. Maybe they're different templates. It's up to you. But you need, you know, X sorts of people to make each half of the game work. And if you get all the way through this campaign and the players are so in love with it that they want a second season or a sequel later, it can turn out that your process of going through all of the underworlds and myths and potent memories, uh, in fact, have taken all of those sort of psychic impressions, those uh, abstractions that we believe in, and made them real. So the next season is, you know, uh, one or more of the underworlds is beginning to uh, merge with the modern world and getting you closer, further from the wainscot concept and closer to the return of magic campaign. And And that could even be a a plot that one group of necromancers, I mean, other necromancers want no part of it, but one group of necromancers for religious reasons or because they think that as the only people with magic, they would rule a fantasy world even better um, that they're trying to make it happen. So it gives you a, a big bad and that if everyone's kind of having fun playing in this more urban fantastic setting that uh, they only sort of succeed. They, they kill the main necromancer or whatever you do to necromancers to take them off the table, but too bad. The part of the ritual that we enjoyed can't be undone, right? We're stuck with shambling clay creatures sneaking around in the, in the suburbs that got out of the Mesopotamian hell. And that's just now part of the, part of the world. And most people don't believe in them. They're still cryptids, but we all know that they're real. Right. And if this was a TV show, the second season would be Niflheim comes to Earth, and the third season would be, oh yeah, now it's the Western Lands right, to yep. merge. And, uh, and then our big fifth season you know, finale that we uh, pitched when we sold it to the CW is, now it's uh, the, the Christian hell with Lucifer and all those guys are, are finally going to pour out, right? That the, the myth hells were kind of stacked on top of Dante hell, and now we're in trouble because, you know, the literal pits of hell are opening up, and we really have to, you know, get, take it seriously, folks. Right. The the trick is to not to save the most expensive CGI hell for the last season when they're starting to cut the budget. Right, yeah. Uh, but I think we're digressing, and mm-hmm. therefore it's time for us to float, float up into the air over this commercial and to another segment on the other side. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need 
to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The retinal scan that you had to undergo in order to look at the folders clearly marked top secret tell us that we are once more in the Tradecraft Hut. But this time around, the Tradecraft Hut takes on a bit of a ripped from the headlines sort of a vibe because, Ken, we're going to explain the baffling new world of spy balloons. So if you're one of those listeners who years after a episode drops goes back and finally listens to everything in order... If you're listening to this in 2027, you might well be going, spy balloons, what the heck? But here in February 2023, it was our crazy story for about a week and a half. And that crazy story started. So there's there's one sort of big bad balloon and then a few other balloons, I think, got swept up in a bit of collateral damage. Huh? The excitement. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the big bad balloon that we're speaking of is the Chinese spy balloon that was spotted from the ground, something had gone wrong or right, I don't know. But the good people in, I believe, Billings, Montana, looked up one day and said, what's that? That ain't no moon. And they took telephoto pictures of it, and they you know, threw it onto the Billings News, and everyone said, well, that looks like a darn spy balloon. And then there was a hilarious bit where the Pentagon denied it was a spy balloon, and then they said, yes, it's a spy balloon, but we can't do anything to the spy balloon. And then they said, well, there's been lots of spy balloons. Why are you getting on our uh, tail about it now? But the end result was the heroic American Air Force, the F-22, got its first air-to-air combat kill by shooting down the Chinese spy balloon over South Carolina, right over the coast of South Carolina, so that the wreckage fell into the ocean instead of on some poor fellow in Billings, Montana, because the spy balloon turns out to have had about two tons of stuff hanging off the spy balloon. Yeah, if that landed on some cows, the, the, none of them would like it. No, nobody would like being under the spy balloon when it comes down post-F-22 encounter. It had four motors, so it was steerable. It had these giant solar panels that were, you know, about two school buses long was how long the whole spy balloon apparatus was. And then there was bunches of antennas because the job of the spy balloon was to pick up electronic intelligence as it floats over Oh, let's say uh, the Malmstrom missile silos that were right below the spy balloon when it was floating over the middle of Montana, that kind of thing. That That's basically what these, you know, big new Chinese spy balloons are. Once it made the, the news in America, everyone started saying, oh, that must have been that weird thing that the army saw off of Hawaii in 2022 and then... They've been spotted off Luzon in the Philippines, uh, the Andaman Islands over an Indian naval base, and over Japan twice in 2020 and 2021. So either the Chinese have started getting bolder with their balloon surveillance, or this is a relatively new program because they just developed these cool steerable balloons based on technology that we have also been developing in the Pentagon. Right. So, but the difference between this sighting and the previous ones is this became a cable news story. Right. Uh, and it's a per- perfect cable news story because once it's been spotted, they could track it. And here's live footage of the balloon. And, and people got kind of worried about this balloon. And, of course, I think no president, no matter who they are, is going to turn down an opportunity to shoot a thing down 
and seem cool and wear their aviator glasses. And if there is such a president, certainly isn't Joe Biden. So no, it was not. So after this. And to Biden's credit, he wanted to shoot it down immediately. When he heard about the balloon, they call <laughs> yes, President Joe and they say, we've got a Chinese balloon hovering over the great state of Montana. And Joe Biden says, well, shoot it down. Why right. do I have to tell you your jobs? And they said, oh, but it's a very dangerous balloon and it could hurt a person in Montana. And then he sort of like returned to his slumbers. And then they woke him up when it was over an ocean. And he said, now do what I said and shoot the balloon down. Yes. So he was not being, you know, back and forth thing on the balloon. He was not, you know, tergiversating. He knew what he wanted to do about that dang balloon. Yeah. And he just needed those pointy heads in the Pentagon to listen to reason. You got to see the white of its balloon eye. Balloon eye. And so after that, NORAD thinks, well, we should see if there are other balloons or other things in the air. Let's reset the settings on all our radars. Let's, right. And of course, let's not forget for the moment that part of the cable news coverage is also maybe it's aliens. Yeah. Which shows us that the, you know, when the, when the chips are down, that today's press is just as irresponsible as it would have been in any other in 1897. Yeah. And so... I think there is some, you know, pretty, there's some fudging of the details of what some of the balloons did. And uh, so I guess the next one that got shot down. So, so this one clearly is a spy balloon. Now we have the, another one that's sort of ambiguous as to what was going on there, whether there's misreporting. This is the one that I think was described as it is cylindrical and has no known propulsion system. Well, if it's a balloon, yeah. it doesn't have a visible propulsion system because the propulsion system is the wind. The beautiful wind. Magic space phlogiston. Anyway, so a car-sized object, or a supposedly car-sized object, was shot down over sea ice near Dead Horse, uh, Alaska. And and someone helpfully described it as silvery gray and cylindrical. Yes, right. And so the question here is, you know, is this an MFO? Is this a misidentified flying object? On uh, the next day, on the 11th, an American F-22 over Canadian airspace as part of a, a NORAD exercise that also had Canadian planes in the sky shot down another thing that had been detected by radar. Because, of course, as you said, uh, we've suddenly dialed back to, you know, detect way more things in the sky. And there was a big to-do over this. It was shot down uh, over the Yukon. And initially, they're saying, well, we're, you know, we're going to make sure we get down on the ground. We're going to recover this. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Well... Turns out that the Yukon is very large and yeah. also cold. Yeah. And they very quietly stopped looking for it because there is a pretty good chance that this was a Pico balloon belonging to the NIBBB, the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, a group of hobbyists who are engaged in this, this relatively new hobby of, the, of Pico ballooning, in which people send balloons sometimes not much more sophisticated than your basic shiny Mylar balloon up into the high altitude with a radio transmitter and follow its progress. And these balloons never return home. This has been happening for about a decade, and this whole hobby started when a man named Ron Meadows uh, figured out the exact amount of helium you needed to turn these, you know, relatively everyday balloons into high altitude craft. You can buy expensive ones from his company, Scientific Balloon Solutions, or you can buy <laughs> cheaper ones for like 12 bucks from a Japanese company, which is the one that I think the $400,000 Sidewinder missile shot down in this case of the one over the, over the Yukon. And I guess good shooting to hit a little mylar balloon that's that's good yeah and then next we had another one shot down near lake huron which 
is less clear, but also probably sounds like a Pico balloon, right? Yeah, I mean, that's... I don't know the details of uh, the Lake Huron shoot-down. I was very excited to know that the balloon was basically, you know, a, a Chicago voter at that point. <laughs> and then they talked about the Northern Illinois Balloon Brigade, and I thought that this sounded like that might have been them as well. But, of course, you know, if they had, if they could have kept that balloon off the Montana TV... The Pentagon absolutely would have that they would have either let the Chinese spy balloon wander across the country and never said anything to the president, or they would have had it shot down over the ocean in a quiet way that no one paid attention to. So we don't know because this program, as I mentioned, is sort of an ongoing situation and the ongoing situation goes back possibly as far as 2014 when the USS Theodore Roosevelt carrier air wing had multiple sightings of, quote, translucent spheres with a cube inside hovering around their training grounds off North Carolina. And a naval training exercise involves the Navy sailing out, shutting the sea down to other craft, shutting the sky down to airplanes, and then letting off all of their cool electronic warfare because their job is to try and find each other's missiles and boats and planes before they're in a position to attack the ship. That's how you train a modern day carrier group because you know, the balloon is $12. The missile is 400 grand, the carrier priceless as the ad says. So, (laughs) um, and and that's wholesale price, right? And that's wholesale. And so there's a gigantic harvest of electronic intelligence that happens off these training sites. And as we've noted, balloons, super cheap, easy to float into a training site. And up until fairly recently, the radars were not set to balloon because balloons generally have a very, very, very low radar albedo. They don't reflect radar very much because they're just a piece of plastic floating around. And if you set up an alarm every time you detect a balloon, you're detecting every balloon sent up by the Pico balloon. Exactly. And so you're in a situation. The USS Omaha filmed a balloon probe in a similar U.S. Navy training zone off San Diego in 2019. And just from the Pentagon's list of UAP sightings, which is their new cool word for UFOs, in 2022, there were 160 balloon-like sightings. So some of those are Pico balloons. Some of those are weather balloons, just like, you know, Roswell. But some of them are probably surveillance balloons run by people who want to get a squint at American electronic intelligence capacity. Right. And the the initial question that I I think a lot of people had is, well, don't they have satellites for that? And one explanation was, well, maybe the Chinese satellites aren't as great as they say. But also, if your objective is not photography, but to intercept electronic communications, you need something closer to those communications. Right. And also, even satellites have a diffraction limit a hard optical limit that no amount of clever software can overcome. Without that software, it's about a 25 to 31 centimeter limit, so you can't see anything smaller than that. So you can't read a license plate, as they say. And you still can't read a license plate from space, because even with the algorithms, the technical limit seems to be about 6 centimeters. So if you want to take a picture of something the size of a face or a license plate, You need the camera to be closer, and that's why we still have a U-2 program, as we discovered when the U-2 pilot took a selfie with the Chinese spy balloon. So it's like, hey, we still have U-2s. That's amazing. I thought they went out with, you know, the bull haircut, but here they are. So the balloons also are cheap, as we noted. The modern balloons can uh, linger for weeks or months 
in a spot instead of in days. They are mostly off the targeting algorithm. So even if the radar picks them up, you don't have a setting on your, on your missile for balloon. That's why it is actually pretty impressive shooting to knock one down with a sidewinder. They can be launched from a freighter or anything else, a truck probably. If they go up to a high altitude, you can predict their path very well. We have the upper atmosphere's wind patterns uh, super well mapped. You can, in fact, even program a balloon just by changing the, the amount of ballast and inflation that it has to fly over China or Russia or America, some Northern Hemisphere country. I assume you could spy on Australia and the tip of Argentina, too, but we're sticking in the Northern Hemisphere, which is where all the big dogs live, and it can go all over their territory and then cycle back around and land in your own space. So that used to not be the case, and now it absolutely is. And as we mentioned, balloons do turn out to be hard to shoot down unless you've got a, a real F-22 ace on your hand, as opposed to a U-2 spy plane, which could be knocked down by the Russians with a SAM missile. And that was that was ridiculously easy to shoot down. So one hopes that the new U-2s are a little better than that. So the question before us now is, in a world where the uh, main spies are vampires, uh, why are they using balloons? Now, of course, I think, uh, first of all, if you're a, a vampire, balloons are still a new technology to you. Yeah, you're still very excited about that Mongolfia guy. That's like, can we send up a balloon? And yeah, and your Renfields go, oh, yeah, sure, we can look into how to make balloons better. Sure, boss. But I would think also that uh, what they're looking for is definitely not something that is restricted to you know, the, the altitude of satellites. But if they're trying to detect the presence, the, the blood radiation of uh, particularly interesting mortals to them, for example, trying to find someone with the Harker bloodline that they've been trying to uh, wipe out, you definitely need a balloon for that, right? A, a satellite isn't going to cut it. So what do our Night Black Agents characters do when they see a big balloon up in the air that, you know, they hit, they're in Belgium all of a sudden, they hear that uh, a, a balloon is in the air coming their way. That's uh, sort of an interesting threat that is possibly beyond the uh, immediate ability of your sort of Jason Bourne type to deal with. Yeah, I mean, the the balloons that are coming after you are definitely the surveillance type balloon. They're checking probably not for your blood type radiation, but they might if magic is a thing. Let's say you've stolen some sort of magic artifact and you're keeping it away from the vampires, even if your blood doesn't radiate, I'll bet the artifact does. So you put a little um, uh, thaumatoscope on your balloon and you can hover it over and you can spot where it is in the city without even sending your Renfields in yet with the triangulators. And it's a simple matter of a blow dart to get a tracker into you. Right. Exactly. That's another possibility is that you've been, you know, uh, typed at the same time that one vampire took a bite out of you. You've had something planted in you that they can track. Although if they can track you with a, with a tracker, they hardly need a balloon for it. The other thing that I think is more fun is that you can use balloons against the vampire compound against Castle Dracula or against the uh, compound of the, you know, German government that is actually run by vampires because the miniature robot surveillance balloon, it's a little tiny balloon. It uses networked swarm technology. The balloon has little thrusters. It has a solar power battery and it's been patented since 2008. It's off the shelf technology by now. So you can maybe not release a gigantic two school bus ace-level Chinese spy balloon, but you can definitely release your swarm of little balloons that either just do uh, like the CIA did in Cuba in 1963, trigger 
the base radar so that you can read off all the wavelengths so that you, when you go in stealthy, you know what wavelengths to avoid, or it can serve as a distraction. People might think that they're under attack by UFOs. If the vampires are alien vampires, the confusion between balloons and UFOs is something that they're using to mess with people, but also it's something you can use right back at them. So I feel like the, the humble Pico balloon is actually a, a fairly cool surveillance platform. If you can loft it, and, you know, send it up over the city and you've got your own thaumoscope. Maybe sure your, um, uh, sacred dagger shows up on it, but also the big, you know, hell mouth that the vampires have got going on will certainly show up on it. And that gives you an in, in surveillance technology without having to retask a keyhole satellite that you've helpfully programmed with the useless wavelengths way out in the microwave band that detect magic. Right. So you can be in your uh, white van watching the footage come back from your balloon, or even more interestingly, because they don't actually transmit back in current technology, you have to go and retrieve the balloon that has all the information you need about uh, Castle Dracula, and guess who else wants to retrieve the balloon? Well, there you go. There's a whole night's play right there. Right. Some balloons do transmit back to, um, uh, you know, satellites. You can put a sat phone on a balloon, absolutely. But I think it is more fun if... You know, the thaumoscope, well, it's just too heavy. You can't add the satellite phone on it. You do have to find the balloon when it goes down. And, of course, the vampires are sending their Renfields out to go after you. Well, uh, now that we've uh, generated, uh, I think, several scenarios uh, worth of uh, vampire uh, stuff out of this nonsense balloon story, we've made it, you know, worthwhile. And uh, we can then uh, head on through this commercial to see what waits for us on the other side. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Podcasting is an audio medium, so keep us free of ear ghosts alongside such phantasmo-otological backers as... Martin Rundquist. Sean Stevenson. James Stewart. Ben Vincent. And Chad Ward. The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn... The whatever that is under our feet as we make our way to our seats, welcome us to the center aisle, center seat of the Cinema Hut. And uh, we're not doing the science fiction essentials right now. We're putting those on pause because the Oscars are right around the corner. And that means it is our job to tell the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences once more they were wrong and they should just give it up 
and uh, give that money to charity, I think is our goal. Right. Because normally, of course, actual real film critics who get passes and screeners do their top 10 lists at the end of the year. But the way the release schedule works, that's when all the prestige movies get released. And so uh, we, mere civilians, have now finally had time to catch up with most of 2022's amazing output. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple that might be on this list had I seen them as usual, but it's a shorter list because the windows are closing and uh, many more things that I wound up liking this year. They basically debuted on uh, streaming platforms. So let us start, Ken, with your number 10 pick. All right. Uh, I guess I should preface this by saying that unlike some years, my basically my number six through my number 13 pick I, I throw that ice a different day. I'm in a different mood when I write my list. It could have come down in a different order. Yes, there's a whole bunch. I, I could easily put a whole bunch of things on my 11 to even 24 on this list. It's really hard to choose. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that you will mention some of the ones that I didn't so I can also so you can they were good, chime so. in. Exactly. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to start on number 10 with RRR. Indian superhero film, quite frankly, uh, except the heroes are historical revolutionaries against the hated British. They team up in a ahistorical, brightly colored, explosive, fast moving narrative. The two and a half or three hours, whatever it is, just flies by. And it is, as I mentioned at the time, if Michael Bay made a movie about Paul Revere and uh, Francis Marion teaming up when they were both young and hot to fight the hated British in 1765, that would be RRR, except there also wouldn't be an amazingly killer dance number the way that there is. It's maybe not quite best of breed for Bollywood, but it is absolutely epic filmmaking in the great tradition that almost India is the only country that does anymore. And RRR, I think, is the best, technically Tollywood, because it's Southern Indian film production, but the best Indian big film of the year. And it was so good that... Film critics got really excited about it for a little bit and discovered all the things about Indian cinema that are literally true for half of Indian cinema, uh, but RRR is still the best iteration of that and deserves its slot at number 10 for me. Yeah, it was a genuine breakthrough hit. I still have a bad feeling about the final <laughs> celebration you feel of like maybe nationalism. A, a dance number celebrating Suba, uh, Nazi collaborator Subhas Chandra Bose should knock it off number yeah, 10. I couldn't quite put it on my top 10 because of that. Right. Something might happen in the next few years that will make us feel weird about that. Well, there we are. So my violent superheroic film, the culture involved is safely in the past. Mm -hmm. So uh, the sorts of things the Vikings are going to get up to at the moment, I'm less worried about. So therefore, I can mention my first film on my list of 10 is The Northman by Robert Eggers. This is, of course, a uh, sort of an inverted pre-Christianized or de-Christianized version of uh, Hamlet. It's also a big, gigantic historical revenge epic. Uh, visually, it swings for the fences. It's big, crazy, brutal. It is just true uh, spectacle and interesting treatment of the Hamlet story because it's no longer about action versus contemplation, but rather about choice versus fate. Because, of course, the idea that we are fated and you have to live out your fate is something that is profoundly alien to us. And this big, bold, extravagant film digs into that alien worldview in a way that I found uh, satisfying and surprising. Long-time listeners of this segment on this program know that when you begin a sentence with long-time listeners, that means <laughs> that I'm holding my fire on the Northman, perhaps because it also appears 
on my list. So number nine, Ken. My number nine is The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's eight and a half with all that that implies. It is a, I, I was watching it uh, literally last night and there was a stretch there, basically the whole second act and well into the third act where I was, I literally forgot I was watching the movie that was the Steven Spielberg uh, look back at his parents through the beautiful 1950s lens that he's the last practitioner of. And I was say, oh, what happens next? I was so caught up in it and it was so perfect. And I almost got annoyed at how perfect it was because it was like, <laughs> come on, Steven, leave something for everybody else. Fortunately, the third act, there's a couple of, of, of hiccups and stops. And I came back to myself briefly. And so it's only number nine for me. That's uh, well done, Stephen. You've shown your, your Cindy Crawford mole, your, your, your mark of humility, but it's still just an amazing narrative. It's a great story, beautifully cast, beautifully shot. Again, it's a 1950s uh, film language classic with, with all that that implies and with the beauty and control that uh, Janice Kaminsky can, can bring to the camera. You know, Tony Kushner co-wrote the script with Steven about his, you know, parents and, and his life. I'm hoping that maybe it was Tony Kushner that, that, uh, you know, just touched my head with a tiny bit of theatrical overwriting to, to bring me back out. But it's still, it's, it was such an experience. And that last gag, that last bit is maybe the, the best last bit in American cinema this century. It's so good and so perfect and no notes. I, I loved it. It was just great. Yes. And, and brilliant casting of that cameo at the end. Well, this is one of the films that I was hoping you would mention because I couldn't quite fit it on my list. I think there are a couple of little clangers uh, mm -hmm. where obvious Steven shows up. I wouldn't blame Tony Kushner for those. Yeah. Uh, but well, the, they were collaborators in every sense uh, on the, yeah. on that film. Yeah. They're the things that really stick with me about that movie. And in particular are Michelle Williams performance as the mother character and mm -hmm. her sort of the power of her personality and her thwartedness. And that is really sort of, she's the emotional heart of the film, even though it's on the surface, a, a coming of age autobiography. It's really more about the relationship of the parents as seen through someone who can't quite understand that yet, that I think lifts that in addition to, of course, Spielberg's mastery of cinema above your typical coming of age film. Something quite different in spirit, though, is my number nine, Crimes of the Future. A uh, little Canadian content here for you. Uh, David Cronenberg periodically will meet the demand to make a very Cronenberg-y movie instead of the more sort of prestige art films he usually makes these days. And then people will go, oh, we didn't mean that, Cronenberg. Yeah. No, no, no. Dial it back again, David. Yeah. We'll let you know when you get it right. So this is a strange dreamlike spy conspiracy making of art movie. And it's set in a kinky near future. Uh, pain is mostly doesn't exist anymore. And that allows uh, the rise of performance artists who use uh, mutilation or in the case of Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, his ability to mutate new, interesting, artistically challenging organs with his accelerated evolution syndrome. So he, with uh, his uh, partner in art and love, Leah Sedu, are working on continuing the art of body horror that is uh, so central to uh, the key Cronenberg horror films in this sort of strange dreamlike atmosphere where there are suspense and conspiracy things happening, but they happen in a, a, a strange dreamlike way where it's not a, about suspense, but more like you're 
trapped in a dream about a uh, a thriller and it is the i think the overall feeling of this quite stylized film which goes back to his original 70s films in having he's instructed very talented actors to give the sort of stilted performances that his less talented actors did in the 70s in order to fully conjure his strange vision back to uh dreamlike life i mean i agree with everything you just said especially the the wildly divergent performances which were a hoot fortunately one of them is given by Kristen stewart who we all know is a great actress so when when she gives a performance that weird and off kilter it's on purpose but you know it was perfect bloody pulp in every sense I, and if I were as big a Burroughs fan as you were, I think it would be on my list instead of just below my list, which is where it is. But it was, it was a thrill ride. It was great. Um, if you're looking for Cronenberg, but gross Cronenberg, but accessible gross Cronenberg, right. I think this is a good movie to choose. And maybe more of a chill ride than a thrill ride. Exactly. With that, my number eight is Charlotte Wells's After Sun which is we're, we're doing a lot of, you know, parenting movies, which hopefully we will stop at some point in, in the upper reaches of my thing. But right now we're going to follow the Fablemans with After Sun. So it's all about kids and their memories. This one is, a, again, a coming of age drama. It's got Paul Mescal as a 30 year old dad and Frankie Corio as the, his 11 year old daughter and how they bond on a holiday in a terrible British resort in Turkey. It's sort of a, a weird observational film on that level, but it's also very much just about them vibing and enjoying their holiday. But it's also, as we can tell from the fact that there are things that happen when Frankie is not watching, that there's more to going on with her dad's emotional life. And the sort of note of, I can't capture this memory begins to pay off in ever more dramatic fashion while never actually doing anything so trite as have a big event that blows everything up in the moment. This is all about recall. It is w one of those films where we just layer on scene after scene, emotional valence after emotional valence, and it all builds to this kind of perfect effect. Uh, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's like a perfect, you know, watercolor painting of a movie. There's, Nothing is out of place. There's no drips, but it's all very much built and planned to create this almost lyric impression. And it does it amazingly well for any movie. And for a first feature film, it's doubly surprising. And without the acting by uh, Mescal and Corio, it wouldn't work. And they are tremendously natural and tremendously winning characters. So spending time at that dumb resort with them is for yourself also a vacation. So you have that audience proxy happy memory that, that gets instilled in you. It's a, it's a, it's not a hangout film in the sense that you and I usually use the term, but it's kind of a hangout film. I, I think if you're, you know, your inner 11 year old girl is going to enjoy the hell out of it. it. It does a really interesting job of conveying how the vacations that you remember from your childhood were both eventful, but also boring. <laughs> and part of the thing you remember is that there wasn't enough to do and it was kind of dull. And you're uh, absolutely right. It's a beautiful oblique drama. Interestingly, Wells started it with more of a plot and took the plot out as she <laughs> developed the uh, script. And it really is about how in order to protect us when we are children, our parents have to hide from us who they really are. And that, of course, uh, protects us while we're kids. And then as adults may leave us uh, wondering about some stuff. So I'm glad you mentioned yet another one that 
didn't quite make my list because there's too many good movies this year. Yeah, it was a really, really uh, dense pack of movies in 2022. But your number eight, then, would be something entirely different. Nope. Actually, not that you're wrong. It is very different. (laughs) But it is Nope by Jordan Peele, in which a laconic horse movie wrangler, played by Danny Kaluuya, and his extroverted sister in a re-breakthrough role by Kiki Palmer. Uh, They seek a payday by trying to... uh, There's a weird cloud over their failing ranch, and uh, they think that maybe it's a UFO, and they uh, join up with a, a bored, sort of uh, sad worker at an electronics store to try and document that. And it takes a long time of sort of mysterious imagery to reveal what actual horror subgenre it is. And it's uh, one we don't get all that often. It's sort of a welcome return. But the amazing thing about it is the visuals. It's shot in IMAX. And in a way that you don't even necessarily notice on first viewing, they found a new technical solution to day-for-night photography because you just think, oh, this was shot at night. Yeah. But there's way more detail and stuff than you would see in something actually shot for night. The problem with traditional day-for-night where you shoot during the day and then use filters... Is it looks like it looks, garbage. looks <laughs> terrible and weird. There's the 60s version, which looks really awful and, and unreal where you still see shadows and stuff. There's the newer sort of color graded version you see in a movie like Castaway, where they just turn everything blue and somehow that's, but this actually looks like night, but was shot during the day with this incredible new process that basically finds the visual frequencies of the, in post and successfully reverses them. So it has this incredible expansive visual majesty that uh, if you're not seeing it in a theater, at least watch it on your giant television, not mm-hmm. on your phone. But It's uh, strange and exciting and haunting and uh, another brilliant original horror film from Jordan Peele. And as is my practice and our won't, I will forbear from commentary on Nope at this moment, Senator. With that, my number seven is also a science fiction film, also a monster film, also a Western. In all those ways, it's like Hope, but it is Prey, directed by Dan Trachtenberg. It is easily the second best Predator movie. It, it is hard recalling both of them now in some degree of quiescence to say, maybe it's the best Predator movie. It's an amazingly good... It makes sense so much without the first one, but then again, it's completely self-contained. Right. It, it works so well. Amber Midthunder plays a young Comanche woman who is mad that she doesn't get to go on a sacred hunt just because of dumb old rules. Goes on a sacred hunt. And the monster she is sacredly hunting is, of course, the Predator. And we have a wonderful sort of classic Western uh, hunting the, the, the bad thing story. We have an amazing nature film of um, uh, the, the what was 1719 Wyoming. We have a great little family bit. Every character is perfectly drawn. You understand them immediately. Something that movies shot in English can't manage ha- more than half the time. And it's just a taut, perfect, no notes, perfect pace thriller. And it works. It, every part of it works. It's just a terrific film. It's a star maker. If there was such a thing as movie stars anymore for Amber mid thunder. And it is proof of concept that, Oh yes. Also you can make anything into a great movie. If you don't just slack off and half ass it the whole time. So huge props to everyone involved, Daniel Trachtenberg, but this is just a, uh, a miraculously good movie that I literally watched uh, on the post Gen Con crash on the theory. Well, how bad can it be? And 
goodness me, did I learn that I was being unfair to pray. It is absolutely, you know, nails a spot in my top 10. And as I say, on a different day, it could have gone even higher on my top 10, but it's definitely my number seven. I, I really have to thank you for helping me squeeze 15 or 16 movies into my top 10. Well, I'm hoping that you're going to do the same for me. Right. So, yes, it is brilliant. And all of the things you say about it is correct. And it's a great, it's a marvel of economy in an era when the running times of films is stretching, you know, first dramas were two and a half hours. And now, like, the new John Wick is going to be two and a half hours, which is yeah. too long for an action film. But this is the right length for yep. what you want from and a great example. A tight of, 99 minutes. Yeah. Taking all of the elements uh, that you want in a Predator film and then completely integrating them in a completely other context. My number seven is Official Competition. Uh, this is a Spanish film directed by Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat. And it's a hilarious, formally rigorous comedy about making art, particularly making movies. Penelope Cruz is an eccentric director who decides basically to torture her two main actors through the rehearsal process for this new film that she's uh, preparing to make. That's an adaptation of a classic novel and her hair and her uh, costume are uh, just the tip of the iceberg of a great performance from her that you do not expect. She, you know, rarely gets to do a comedy or of an over the top character. And as usual, all of her, her really great work is all in Spanish. The Argentinian actor, Oscar Martinez plays a uh, pretentious, a stuffy theater actor and Antonio Banderas plays a, a temperamental movie star and uh, she heightens their clash of egos and it's all shot in this empty giant modernist space that she's uh, elected to do the rehearsals in and plays the mind games on them for. And so it's tempting when creating a top 10 list to leave out the comedies. And this one is, on one hand, a very funny comedy, but also a, a visually arresting and a very artful uh, movie on the cinematic level. Yeah, it's one of the ones that I missed. Didn't get to see it. Penelope Cruz is everything that you say. She's, you know, Marilyn Monroe, not just in terms of, you know, sheer screen hotness and charisma, but also in comic timing. She's a great actress. She's super good whenever she's in a movie, it's just a matter of timing and it being on, I think, a series of weird channels. So I didn't quite figure out how to see it. As though it was prophesized by a weird Bjork, my number six has appeared in this list before. It is the Northman, Dave Eggers' Hamlet, but mostly his Viking vision quest and both the vision quest of the titular Viking, Prince Amleth, who is played by Alexander Sarsgaard in a very interior. I mean, you talk about getting into a role for Hamlet, nailed that one. But also, it's the Viking vision quest of Robert Eggers. Uh, he loves to immerse himself historically. That was one of the great things about the Vich, was it felt very real to Puritan New England. Uh, this feels very real to Viking-era Norway and the wild uh, set of uh, surroundings and cultural assumptions that went into that. At no point do we sort of step back and, and laugh at it or step back and, you know, sort of stroke our chin and observe the Hamlet parts appear organically. It's not just as a bit. That said, Willem Dafoe's Yorick is amazing. And <laughs> by itself, I think, you know, Willem Dafoe is one of those things. If you want your film to increase half a letter grade, just put Willem Dafoe in it and let him be Willem Dafoe. 
but it everything works. Um, all the characters they're they're both wildly recognizable to us. It, it's a it's a star studded film. Anya Taylor Joy, Nicole Kidman, Clay's Bang does an amazing job as the Claudius character. Erases his terrible Dracula for me. It's just an amazingly done movie, and it's a movie about sort of making sure that all the atmosphere of your movie feeds this same tone. It's very, you know, Poe-esque in its effect in a way, despite being kind of a long movie about kind of a lot of Vikings. And my number six is a title that before I hit play on this, I would never have dreamed (laughs) that it would wind up on my top 10 list. Mm -hmm. And this is, I have two animated films on my list. And the first one is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, (laughs) which is, you probably know the little uh, YouTube shorts if you haven't seen the feature film yet. And it is about a a sentient snail shell who is uh, living in uh, an Airbnb uh, with his grandmother. All of the other members of his community who used to live in this house have suddenly disappeared. He's alone. The person who rents the house is a a documentarian who has recently been uh, dumped. And he starts making a film about Marcel, whose voice is done by Jenny Slate. And he's this incredible, soulful character. And I would never, first of all, wasn't even anticipating how it would turn an Airbnb into just through the scale of it and focusing on on this little one inch tall imaginary creature of uh, a house as a lonely, gigantic alien environment, in some ways almost like the weird planetary environment in a forbidden planet, but also just how incredibly moving a story it is about uh, isolation and and loss and grief. And uh, it really uh, hit me where it lived and and does everything that any work of uh, cinema should do, including being innovative and surprising. And the lead character is a snail shell with an eye. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've not seen it. I, I saw the previews and perhaps like yourself said, maybe another day when my, you know, diabetes levels aren't as worryingly close as they are, but film is a conversation with the filmmaker and the film viewer. And if the viewer brings part of themselves to that conversation, the result can be as transcendent as you, as you speak. There may come a day when I need to watch Marcel, the show with shoes on. And I am going to save it for that day. But I absolutely recognize the, the the great value that a film like that can have. And I'm just glad it had it. Uh, well, I think it's time for us to, uh, we've gotten halfway through our list. So it's time to break a little exciting commercial message. And then we'll be back. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... 
in Delta Green, the Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. And the Cinema Hut continues. We've had our intermission. We watched the animation where the hot dogs went to the concession stand. And Ken, you're going to kick us off in the second half by telling us about your fifth favorite movie of 2022. Yeah, the number five for me. And I feel like people are waiting. People who know the Ken brand are saying, Ken, Baz Luhrmann made a movie this year. Why are you so quiet? (laughs) And the answer is because I was waiting for number five. That's why my number five is Elvis, the biopic, the musical biopic. So Robin is right now breaking out in hives of America's great king, Elvis Presley, played with remarkable fidelity by Austin Butler and his manager, Tom Parker, played with remarkable something by Tom Hanks. The uh, basically the notion of making Elvis as the temptation of the devil mystery play from Middle Ages. That's a choice. And by God, when Baz Luhrmann makes a choice, he doesn't half guess. He just jumps in and does it, and it works. It's amazing. I mean, Elvis is a mythological character. I think all Americans know that, and Lerman leans into the myth, I think, as an only a non-American can. He just wants to tell the, the Elvis hero's tale, the religious narrative of Elvis, and that's what he does. Uh, it's made, obviously, with the cooperation of the Presley family, so Elvis is a bit of a hagiographic hey figure in it, but again... That is what you want in your God Kings, I feel. And the technical mastery is, you know, it's it's as good as anything Baz has done. The musical numbers blow the roof off the joint in the way that the historical Elvis actually did. There are elements of Elvis's relentless professionalism uh, at producing his, his, his songs and making things happen. There's elements of his, you know, sort of star-crossed childhood, his star-crossed life are thrown up there. It's everything you want from an Elvis picture. And I maintain that the weird reptilian Colonel Tom Parker performance, strange accent, weird fat suit and all is necessary to bring the story stereopticon style into focus. And without Tom Hanks's generally, um, I don't say reviled, but I think people sort of all, all took a step back, but I really think that it was absolutely core to the success of this film that a, a straight Elvis with a, a sort of just a regular old, uh, you know, bad Tom Parker character wouldn't have worked as well as this sort of high, almost medieval iconography Elvis and Tom Parker uh, duo did. It's two movies beautifully braided into one Elvis story. I would just take this moment to say that if you are not a film critic, one thing you can do with your cinema going is not go to things you know you won't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't go to a Baz Luhrmann movie. Ah, my number five is The Banshees of Inishirin. This, I guess, on my list takes the position of the classically formed, text-driven drama, but it is the absolutely the good version of that. It's directed by Martin McDonough, 
And it is not a two-hander, but a four-hander, basically. And it's set in an isolated uh, Irish island during the Civil War. And a brooding would-be songwriter, played by Brendan Gleeson, announces one day that his garrulous, sweet, and just a little bit boring friend is too much of a distraction for him as he struggles to fill the rest of his days perfecting his music. But then suddenly this becomes a battle of will between the two of them when the Brendan Gleeson character says, don't ever talk to me. Don't be my friend. I don't care. Never mind that we're in a small village together and we're in the same pub every day. I just don't want you in my life anymore. And when the Colin Farrell character pushes back on that, the Brendan Gleeson character goes to ridiculous extremes to show that he is not kidding. It's beautifully acted. The expanse of the countryside and its interaction uh, with the character drama reminds me of John Ford, if John Ford's Irish movies weren't complete nonsense, (laughs) and is beautiful and also strange and challenging in a way that a lot of script-driven movies that get nominated for Oscars are are not. So I found that extremely strong and it's really stuck with me over the weeks since I've seen it. Yeah, the, this was a matter of just timing. I didn't quite have the time. I picked my Irish adaptation drama and saw The Quiet Girl, which I absolutely do not regret doing instead of watching Banshees because I got to see it in the theater. But The Quiet Girl did not make my top ten and perforce, neither did Banshees of Inisherin. My number four, however, is an ironic deconstruction of film that also has fighter jets in it. It is Top Gun Maverick, directed by Joseph Kaczynski and starring America's last movie star, Tom Cruise. It is a mostly a discussion of how films are made today, and it is also a uh, sort of recapitulation of the original 1986 Top Gun. It is both of those things. It does them amazingly, and it does them almost entirely with practical effects. And the only real magic in the movie is Tom Cruise's star power, which still works. It is a just a remarkable job of doing a thing, doing it absolutely correctly, and doing it without a lot of trickery and lies, and then implicitly contrasting that to, well, what are we doing now? What's the other version of extruded product? that uh, just lays there in your stomach for a bit and goes away. It makes that differentiation between the fancy new F-35 and the actually cool F-16. Those are uh, standing in for CGI and IP versus old-fashioned star power-driven movie making of the Tom Cruise sort. And it does it amazingly well. I saw it in IMAX the way God intended, and it is a absolute thrill ride. And also, did I mention there are fighter jets in it. So again, it, it's a movie that does exactly what it sets out to do. And with its meditation on filmmaking and the nature of film and the nature of story, it also did a whole thing that I wasn't even expecting. I literally was just there to see Tom Cruise splash bad guys. And I got this immense movie about Hollywood as a bonus. And I loved it. My number four is also about training to get into an aerial vehicle This is a film that if it had come out like eight years ago and it played art house cinemas would have gotten a lot more attention than it did. It just sort of dropped on Netflix and it kind of vanished without a trace. But this is Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood, the other animated film on my list. And it's by Richard Linkletter, the king of American indie cinema. And this is not only the third 
in his autobiographical trilogy and the earliest chronologically because it covers childhood. So it's one that goes on the shelf with Dazed and Confused and everybody wants some. It's also the third of his animated uh, movies uh, using that sort of rotoscope process that he's explored over the years. So it is a partly fanciful, partly ordinary autobiographical story of, on one hand, his growing up in Houston and just sort of recounting the details of that, of growing up in the late 60s and, uh, you know, how much of a strange alien period that was where, you know, corporal punishment was dished out like it was candy and you walked you're, home. You're literally speaking of, of my childhood as a strange alien period, Robin. Yes. You walked through clouds of DDT on the way home and liked it. And then there's a, that is paired with a fantasy sequence in which he as a kid has to train to go and do an experimental version of the Apollo moon mission before the real one happens. And so it is whimsical and real and uses the animation format to uh, tell a, a very personal memoir style and sort of heighten something that is otherwise quite everyday and I think deserves to be on the shelf with Linklater's very best films and therefore has to be really high on anyone's top 10 list. Certainly is on mine. Yep. I mean, I, I don't take exception to anything you said. Obviously, Richard Linklater is one of my, you know, great icons of American film. This was, as I mentioned, basically my childhood, barring the occasional NASA mission. It spoke to me on the, on that very personal level as Linklater's autobiographical films tend to. It's a joy, as you say, just the sheer palpable delight in making it suffuses every bit of it. It manages to be a movie about childhood that is not irritating and twee, which who, how hard is, well, I guess, you know, we've seen it done twice on my top 10 alone, but still everything you say is right. The The movie is so good, but this year was so strong that it, um, uh, it, it doesn't even, I think, crack my top 20. And that's how many other good movies I saw that we don't have time for. But you're you're not wrong. Nothing you say is wrong. It just the the magic of ordinal numbers puts it uh, not in my top three or top four. But my top three is one that you do agree with me on, and it is Nope by uh, the great Jordan Peele, starring the great Daniel Kaluuya as basically Gary Cooper. So it opens as a western, as you know, Robin. If you make a western, something's going to go on my top ten. Now I get two westerns. I have Prey and Nope. So who doesn't love this? And both of them have monsters. And both of them have monsters, just as a bonus. Because Nope does the most incredibly difficult trick ride of becoming one genre where it is a Western, then it becomes a legitimately terrifying horror film, and then it finishes up as a Western. It's an amazing piece of just pure genre work over and above Daniel Kaluuya's just anchoringly good performance over and above the magical high concept of the monster ecology and the way that it spreads out in your uh, rundown. You didn't mention the, the, the wonderful sort of a foil narrative around Stephen Ewan as a former child actor and the horrific monkey based trauma that links thematically him with the rest of the film. It, it would seem gratuitous in another movie and yet somehow it is uh, organically seamed into this one. And just, as you say, see it on the big screen. I saw it on the big screen. It is just visually compelling in the sort of a John Ford, Big West way. It, it, it's a dual masterpiece, plus, you know, not a star making, because Daniel Kaluuya is already a star, but a star reaffirming turn. Kiki Palmer is terrific. Steven Ewan is terrific. Even the sort of the, the, the B characters come on just like sort of this secondary gunman in uh, Magnificent Seven. So I want to call out Michael Wincott 
as the strangely broken down cinematographer who is also the 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 best gun in the west character that's brought in during the turn it's just a remarkable film in every way as as well as being a technical masterpiece as well as being a riveting example of two simultaneous genres plus a theme story that just flows through and uh, shows that none of this is by accident jordan peele intends it all and the notion of the gaze as the gun but a western you know you could you could make a hundred movies on that theme before you exhausted its its possibilities uh it's just a, a surprisingly great even from jordan peele movie which is why it got to number three on my list my number three really dropped without a trace it uh, <laughs> played the festival circuit and then it went straight to vod but it's by one of my very favorite young filmmakers lily anna amarpour and it's mona lisa and the blood moon so this is a kind of a contemporary modern riff on the sort of stephen king telekinetic escaping the authorities plot line but it's also a strange unexpected uh, modern fairy tale of uh, friendship jong so plays the psychic who's uh, on the run from the uh, establishment and uh, she's taken in by a hard-bitten larcenous stripper played by Kate Hudson. So Kate Hudson has gotten a lot of attention for her, her role in Glass Onion, but this one really shows that she's been overlooked and not given the right roles because she's quite amazing in this very, playing this very complicated, double-sided role. The young psychic develops a bond with her young boy and they go on the run together. It's got uh, one of Amarpour's sort of a bad boy with a heart of gold characters in it. And her strange sort of dreamlike intensity to it. So I really loved it and thought it was a, a real uh, discovery and, and even more so than her previous two films, it's, you know, really deserves uh, another look from people. So that's my number two film. Yeah. I'm now going to do the thing that uh, we always have to remind the audience at home that if I see a film in a festival, I count it as the year that I saw it, not as the year that, some American distributor is going to drag their tail getting it out there. And the reason I do this, A, is because I can't be bothered to remember things. But also <laughs> because some movies I see at a festival never come out again. And then where would we be? So this is coming out this year, but I saw it in 2022. And it is a literally perfect heist thriller called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, directed by Daniel Goldhaber. It is an adaptation of the communist rant of the same name, but wisely, uh, Goldhaber said, no one will watch a movie that's just a communist rant, except in film schools, but if I make a perfect thriller, people will watch it, even people who generally are pro-pipeline, such as Ken Height. I don't know if he mentioned my name when he was thinking about this, but definitely that's what happened. I think he had a vague visual image of you. He may have had a vague visual, given that he cast someone who is sort of the, the Ken Height audience stand-in character in it. I, I feel like maybe he did. But anyway, the larger point is, this is Ocean's Eleven, but with blowing up a pipeline instead of robbing a casino. And wherever you rate Ocean's Eleven, if there was also a very real danger that Danny Ocean would blow himself up, so you add the Hitchcock suspense part of filmmaking back into it, that's what How to Blow Up a Pipeline is. It is just nonstop. It is riveting. It is uh, a perfectly constructed thriller. You leave the, the movie gasping for breath, 
There are seizures and down bits in it as we flash back and figure out how our crew got together. But in the moment, you feel like, you know, you've uh, run a marathon, that there is no uh, sweat or oxygen left in your body. You've been so riveted to the screen. As you know, uh, Robin, if someone does something perfectly, I like to reward them for it. And Daniel Goldhagen made a perfect heist thriller about blowing up a pipeline. And it is... I'm, I'm very envious of all the people who get to see it uh, in 2023 and uh, get to see it for the first time because it is a banger of a movie or perhaps an exploder of a movie. My number two is Decision to Leave by Park Chan-wook, uh, in which a devoted cop played by Park Hae-il investigates a fall from a rock, which might be a murder and might be committed by the victim's wife, who he then becomes romantically obsessed with. This is Park sort of drops his extreme bravura that you may know from things like Sympathy for Lady Vengeance or Old Boy and has a more controlled, less overtly cinematic, but very subtle and powerful uh, vision. This is basically his vertigo Mm -hmm. and is strange and mysterious and compelling and uh, lingers in the mind just the way that uh, Vertigo does and is a a brilliant, subtle treatment of that uh, romantic obsession, crime, suspense subgenre. Wow, look at the time, Robin. I guess I don't have time to talk about Decision to Leave because I have to get to my number one movie, Decision to Leave by Park Chan-wook. Everything you said is correct. It is the only film I gave a pinnacle to all year. And it is a pinnacle. It is, as you say, a Hitchcockian in its quality. It combines the romance with the crime movie. In a lot of movies, we sort of have that as subtext. Park Chan-wook says, let's make it the text and see how that works for us. It is compelling. The editing is is just seamless and beautiful in the moment. And then when you come out of the movie, you're like, oh, my God, that was an amazing editing job, which you don't usually say ever. But I, I, I really felt the, the quality of how the, the, the pace and the tenor of the scenes changed over the course of the film. The music is uh, beautiful and compelling. And the, you know, the stars are, of course, cinematic movie stars. Uh, you know, as I say, we don't make them anymore, but South Korea makes them by the carload lot. And Tang Wei as the woman and Park Hae Lee as the cop are incredible. Their chemistry is real. It sets the, the screen in, in sort of a, a muted, subtle, weird fire that is uh, endlessly compelling to watch and to think about. It's a movie that I saw basically on the grounds that it was directed by Park Chan-wook, and I came out thinking, well, this is what everyone else has to beat, and it turns out no one did, so it was my number one. My number one is Athena by Romain Gavras. It's a French film that, if you love tracking shots, this is the <laughs> apotheosis of that. It's about a uh, what has happened is a, a viral video of a police killing has brought urban warfare to a particular housing project, the Athena, and it pits three brothers against each other. So one of them is the firebrand who's instigating the riot. The other is the cop who has to go in and quell it. And then uh, sort of in between them and kind of a third wheel is their uh, older drug dealer brother. And this is just a stunningly alive, active exercise in motion in which the characterization is delivered through motion. And there are certain shots in this film where your jaw just sort of detaches uh, from your head. If you're paying enough attention to realize what is being done with the camera, 
uh, and it takes a while sometimes. And Gavris does that, and then he does it again, and he does it again. And uh, basically, it's like if the Russian Ark was an action movie in terms <laughs> of its choreography. It's a, a stunning technical achievement, uh, both in the way that it is shot and what is happening on screen, but also has a raw meaning and urgency and immediacy to it. And it's on Netflix. So uh, you have no excuse not to uh, dial that up. Uh, I think most people who listen to this have Netflix and those who don't uh, subscribe to it long enough to watch Athena and then unsubscribe because it's, it's uh, uh, that good and uh, that brilliant and uh, enjoyed one of his previous films, but this is a, a huge sort of leap forward for him. And it's just really movie making excitement merged with meaning in a way that uh, deserved my number one slot. And I uh, watched Athena on my Netflix and everything you say, the just sheer virtuosity, there's no other way to put it, that Gavris uh, uses the camera with, combined with that sort of almost Iliad level of mythic storytelling, really got me. It was a terrific experience. I, I found myself sort of feeling really bad for RRR as I was watching it, because I said, well, this is going to knock RRR off the top 10. Sorry, RRR. And then at the end, a thing happens that I felt sort of let some air out of the film. So it is with great uh, sadness almost, as again, lucky break for RRR, that I, I did not put it in my top 10, but it got it got very close. And for 90% of the film's runtime was, was nailing it. And I had a tr- tremendous time. I still love the movie. I still think the movie is a gigantic success. It just does not quite, I think, you know, close the circle in a way that I would have found compelling enough to put it in my top 10, but it's still an amazing movie and an amazing movie that you should watch. And if you love tracking shots, as you say, uh, this movie is your catnip. It, it is uh, just a, a, as a technical feat of filmmaking, it is maybe one of the two or three best movies I've seen this year. When I originally saw it, I thought I need to follow this 90 minute film with a two hour documentary on how they made it. <laughs> yeah. Since then, Netflix has dropped a half hour making of, that once you watch Athena, you should also watch to see how they did that thing where you go, what, <laughs> what is going, where is the camera? So, uh, well, once we've both uh, gone through our top 10 lists, I think that uh, brings us to the uh, end, not only of this double segment, but this episode. Uh, we'll be back next week, returning more to our regular format and also uh, going back to the Cinema Hut for more of our science fiction cinema essentials. So please join us then. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from being shot down like some doofus balloon alongside such observant backers as... Chris Farrell. Dan Simons. Jeffrey Cars. Jean-Francois Paradis. And Carl Schmidt. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn, with a better armor class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>